and a very warm welcome to the final Asset Allocator podcast of the year. Uh, the mince pies are in the studio. Uh, so am I, I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on Sister Title Investors Chronicle. And with me today are David Thorpe, contributing editor on Asset Allocator, and Joseph Wilkins, a contributor. So both, good to have you in once again. How are you doing? Feeling festive? Yeah, f- feeling festive, Dave. This is being recorded on the day of the FT Christmas party, which I'm relieved about, because if it was the day after, it might not be that productive. Um, might be a huskier affair, I think. Right. Um, absolutely, yes. Um, but let's uh, jump right in, um, festivities aside. So, Joseph, uh, maybe to kick off, um, you've been looking at some kind of research into, um, I suppose, kind of, fun firms and kind of who's you know got presence who's enjoying growth within the kind of dfm space and so on and um, what's kind of been catching your eye from there sure so uh this report i was looking at uh was conducted by next wealth and it's basically i guess almost like a premier league table of you know the biggest fund managers uh and yep. how they have grown over the year um and so it came out with some pretty interesting uh findings um, so the overall conclusion was that um, MPS as a sector grew 14% over the year as opposed to um, advisor platforms, which experienced 9% growth. So they concluded that uh, MPS has taken a bigger bigger market share amid tough market conditions. A lot of the biggest players in the sector, um, namely Tatton and Quilter, who were the two biggest houses, um, Managing, I think it was something like 30, almost 13 billion uh, for Tatton and around 12 for Quilter. Uh, both of those grew their assets enormously. They, they got even bigger. Um, I believe Tatton added 1.7 billion over the year and Quilter added 2.5 billion, which is uh, pretty stupendous. Um, and whilst the the top 10 providers have pretty much remained the same for the last four or five years. They've actually added two new players to the to the top ten biggest, uh, those being Timeline and Waverton. And uh, Timeline had the second largest growth of, growth of any fund house in the database, which uh, saw them rocket 133% uh, over the year. So, yeah, it was uh, a pretty good year for, for most houses. Um there was yeah, there were very few that that saw their assets decline. That's interesting because yeah, if I think even a few years back, you know, we used to discuss the, I suppose the kind of big five, the names like the Brookses and so on. But it sounds like there has still been space for disruption, even in what might have seen like a relatively kind of mature space. Yeah, I think so. I think timeline has almost come out of nowhere for us. Um, David, do you? What, yeah, I mean, it is interesting, as you say, there does seem to be a, a, a number of the mid-sized players seem to have got, you know, got a bit got a bit bigger. I mean, obviously, consolidation has probably uh, helped one or two of those mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then you've had, um, you, you know, you've just had a long period of, of market beta helping helping assets assets grow um, as well. So, so the sector's been been healthy for a long time but i think the mid-market uh, piece has has done quite well um but it is interesting that as you say tatton and quilter who are who are right up there at the top of the tree have done have done quite well um as as well and uh that they haven't 
you know, reached any sort of market saturation point or or anything like that. And, and is the, does the report kind of point to any, I suppose, explanation as to why these names are particularly grabbing market share? You know, are they doing anything particularly different to the these big established players that we've already kind of mentioned? Um, I think a lot of it's cost-based. Mm. Um, so... At some point in the report, it concluded that uh, the DFMs that charge less are growing assets more rapidly. I mean, that's that's hardly a shock, but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, the ones that I think charged combined a combined fee of less than eighty basis points in total um, saw their assets grow by eight uh, percent over the year on average. Um, so I guess there's obviously that appeal, and mm. if Quilter and Tatton can offer. Um, more, you know, competitive rates to their to their clients, then I'm sure that wouldn't that wouldn't stop them from from growing even more. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see what impact the pressure has on the sector in the years ahead. I think one trend that we're noticing is firms increasingly embracing and promoting their. Uh, bespoke DFM or full fat DFM as it's sometimes known uh, whereby it's not, it's not done as a model it's done as uh, at a client level because I think that there's more capacity or many providers feel that there's more capacity to protect their margin if they're doing bespoke uh, DFM rather than uh, model portfolios where there has been um, downward momentum on, on pressure the other outcome perhaps of um, the biggest wealth managers getting bigger is uh, perhaps that it, it starts to impact the, the asset managers because uh, because the, the big wealth managers are writing bigger tickets. Uh, there's a smaller pool of funds that they can invest in and also perhaps that they can apply downward fee pressure. Uh, I mean, Joe and I were in with, uh, with uh, Evelyn Partners uh, not that long ago and they were certainly making a virtue of the fact that um, at their size, uh, they, when they when they add a fund, they, um, they they very much expect not to be paying the uh, the institutional price. Yeah, indeed. I suppose one kind of interesting point you highlight is this um, conflict or this choice people have now between whether they, as a business, lean more into the kind of bespoke side of things or the MPS. Um, for example, the report mentions that it cites kind of. Brooks McDonald as being one name that's kind of um, enjoyed growth in the MPS space, but a decline in its kind of bespoke um, business. And, you know, the report also mentions that a few firms have done that kind of pivot to MPS over recent years, which personally always surprised me because of what you mentioned, David, about the fact that bespoke you can simply make, um, it, it would seem you can simply make more money from it. But um, I suppose if we do see more firms pile into MPS, then that is, again pushing on that kind of like fee pressure that we mentioned and mm-hmm. yeah, just becomes more and more crowded. And, and it's, it's a fee pressure that goes down the chain as well because the asset managers will feel it and the model portfolio guys will feel it and the model portfolio guys maybe are, would argue maybe that they're closer to the end client so they have more capacity to protect their fee relative to the asset manager because, you know, the client meets the advisor, the advisor finds the model portfolio provider who finds the fund manager. So the fund manager is several steps removed from the actual person who's paying the fees. And the further you are away from that, then arguably the less capacity you have to uh, to protect your own margin. Yeah, yeah. And any other kind of interesting highlights in the report? So shall we... Uh... Um, there were only a couple of houses that saw their assets uh, under management decline over the period, those being uh, FE Investments and, and Lion Trust. Mm. Um, they 
kind of anomalies in the general trend of the of the growth that most um, houses have seen. Um, and I think, I guess, part, that's partly probably due to consolidation within the industry as well, like, like we touched upon earlier. Um, and, yeah, I guess this year has seen, you know, all manner of takeovers in the industry. So um, I could see, you know, clients moving away and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, that was... The, the only other trend was that there was a couple of houses that declined, but on the whole, it was a largely positive year for for dear funds. I'd yeah, yeah. That consolidation may be separating some of the kind of winners and, and losers, I suppose. And mm. um, let's turn then to um, something else you guys have been looking into recently. So you know, obviously, we keep close tabs on. Um, what kind of funds DFMs like to buy and so on. And there have been some interesting shifts when it comes to um, UK funds. Uh, perhaps it would be good to start with the UK equity income side. What, what's been going on there? Sure. Um, well, uh, in the growth space, we, which we'll cover in a sec, we, we noticed a general uh, decline in, in the UK uh, sphere. But um, in the income sector obviously the UK being sort of a home for for dividends um it's been reasonably positive so there's uh even load income uh which has attracted a spate of attention this year it's actually the most popular fund uh of its type in our database now um and that's closely now tied with uh man group income uh which has seen a couple of new buyers this year um as well as there's one more, uh, Red Wheel as well, which is a slightly smaller fund, uh, Red Wheel UK Income, uh, which has come out of nowhere on our database, I believe. It's had um, five new buyers this year, but yeah. I, I might be wrong. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of new new names coming through um, that seem to be appealing to uh yeah, to, to clients. So yeah. I, I mean, I guess one of the things that, that I think unites those different funds is the um, is I guess they would they would all be regarded as as value managers. Certainly, um, certainly Red Wheeler are known for that. As is Henry Dixon at, at Mangelg, yeah. uh, who runs who runs that fund. So I guess maybe that's where the the direction of travel has been. Uh, that uh, Red Wheel fund is run by Ian Lance and Nick Purvis, who. Uh, even if people aren't familiar with their work at, at Red Wheel, are very long-established UK uh, value managers. And that fund is £460 million in size. They also, uh, that team, also run um, uh, the Temple Bar Investment Trust, which is uh, another uh, equity income product, uh, which is quite substantial in, in size. Um, but that fund has, has, I think, just passed its five-year track record, which may explain why there has been some uh, inflow into it uh, or, or an increase in the in the number of buyers, uh, as Joe highlighted. Um, Henry Dixon over at um, Man Groups, uh, again, a very, very deep uh, sort of value uh, manager, and I guess that that um, has been, that was a strategy that was certainly very effective in 2022, but also many of the value sectors, such as banks and mining, are paying uh, dividends that uh, that perhaps uh, for an income-focused investor look relatively attractive. And uh, if you want exposure to that part of the market, I guess you'd go to established value teams such as Lance and Purvis at Red Wheel or 
um, Mr. Dixon at um, ManGLG. Yeah, I mean, I guess perhaps one one theory you could put forward is that um, you know, with Lance and Purvis having taken over Temple Bar in recent years, perhaps that's a bit of a shop window in the allocators are saying that's that's performed pretty well in the last two or three years hasn't it so, sure yes indeed that's uh that's um that's an interesting point and um yeah as, as you say that's that's been that's been out there and given them and given them a, a good base to to start from because yeah. trying to launch an open-ended fund would be would be very tricky but that so that team's combined aum is circa four billion at the moment um which which shows i guess that they run they run a lot of mandates but but all of them are within that value uh value uh, parameter yeah i mean even loads a bit more of a sort of quality approach but i suppose what what always stands out to me for even loads is they're they're like a total return fund more than kind of a yield because they, they got kicked out of the um uk equity income sector years ago now when yes, they had up right. you know the controversy with the yield requirements and so on yeah and then the yield requirements were pro- promptly revised down yes because yes. they realized that um a contentious statement here, but they realised that all the good funds were getting kicked out because yeah. uh, they couldn't deliver the yield. But yeah, so even load is, is Hugh Yarrow, is that right? Um, yeah. Down in the Cotswolds? Yes, yeah. in, a, in a barn is a, the point they always make, isn't it? Oh, is it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's how they re- used to always push the fund. Well, there are some very there are some very nice barns down in there, the Cotswolds, <laughs> well, I'm sure. Um, okay, and then what, what happened on the, on the uh, UK growth uh, fund side, Joe? Yeah, sort of less, less sort of positive news there. Um, so we took kind of a long-term approach um, when analysing the change here. We, we looked back to the inception of our database in around 2018. So we're looking at sort of five years. And five years ago, the two most popular funds were Lion Trust, Special Situations, and Linzel Train, UK Equity. They were owned by 11 and 10 owners, respectively, which is a considerable number. Um, and since then, uh, they've seen... a relative decline in interest uh, there's now they now are both owned by only seven dfms um and i think the two funds have had quite a difficult time mm. over the over the past three years um and there's various reasons for that um but so, yeah. i mean i guess on the on the i mean the linzel train um relative underperformance is probably you know not that uh, surprising that the market conditions of the past three years with higher bond yields would particularly impact at a fund such as Nick Trains um, because um, many of the stocks that he has are regarded as consumer durables, you know, predictable cash flows uh, long term into the future and relatively high valuation multiples. When you have stocks like that, higher bond yields reduces the national value of the future income. So I don't think any of our listeners would be surprised to hear that. The Line Trust Special Sits Fund is run by Anthony Cross um, and colleagues, and that's been around for a very long time. Uh, it, has, it tends to have a... Um, it tends to have a, a quality bias similar to, to Linzel Trains at, at, in its large cap, but it also has small and mid cap. And I think an interesting piece of work that we might think about is to see... Uh, where any relative underperformance has come from, although it is worth noting that actually its performance has been relative. It's been relatively okay, even if it's been declining in popularity <laughs> slightly among among DFMs. But but I think maybe small and mid cap uh, exposure has has hurt that because small and mid cap UK has been um, even less popular than me at the Christmas party uh, in the last <laughs> few years. <laughs> yeah, they they were caught, the line trust fund was sort of caught in the eye of the storm, I suppose, because they had the growth 
focus, um, which particularly got hammered, I suppose, last year. And then, as David mentions, they like to delve a bit further down the market cap spectrum, which was another kind of um, hit. But I suppose it'd be interesting to see if people do kind of um, get enamoured of that fund once again, if they if they expect those kind of areas to eventually have a bit of a bounce back. And and if they do, maybe that managers such as Anthony Cross, who who would be a very long established and very well known in the industry, may well be the the, the beneficiaries. And um, let's move on, you know, unless there's anything else you're kind of dying to mention on the, the UK front. No, no. Um, let's, let's move on then. Um, uh, we were discussing earlier, um, before recording, the. Uh, there's also been, I suppose, some interesting kind of analysis we've done on uh, kind of thematic and kind of sector funds that um, kind of DFMs tend to prefer. Um, what's kind of standing out on that front? Uh, sure, well... Obviously, with thematic funds, you can pretty much get any theme these days. You know, the the types of uh, sectors that are available in space, agribusiness, aging populations, you know, like the the variety is nearly endless. Um, So we were trying to figure out, you know, which sort of uh, subsectors are the most popular. Uh, These are, unsurprisingly, technology, healthcare and biotechnology, um, as well as financial services and energy. I guess there's no... No huge surprises in in those names, but um, sort of within that, um, there were some particularly popular funds such as uh, Polar Capital Global Technology, um, which was uh, at the, well about a year ago uh, one of the most popular tech uh, funds, and that's seen an enormous uh, sell-off this year, whilst its um, fellow uh, polar, te- uh, polar capital fund uh, insurance is part of the financial sector and that pretty much accounts for all of the popularity within financials. Mm-hmm. That's, that's owned by pretty much everyone. <laughs> I mean an insurance fund I guess would have, would be expected to have had a place in the sun over the past couple of years because insurance companies similar to banks are required to keep uh, a certain proportion of their uh, capital in, in liquid type assets and they would have earned more from that part of the balance sheet over the past um, couple of years and yeah. um, I mean the other issue I guess with thematic funds is is often the, the timing as, a, as a, a market participant said to me recently one of the one of the issues is everybody gets really excited by a theme but then it takes a firm a number of months or years actually launch it for regulatory reasons marketing reasons internal reasons and by the time they launch it because everybody's been excited about the theme for months, by the time you launch your fund, the valuations are already uh, quite expensive. So almost no thematic fund delivers a good performance in the first uh, year or two mm. because they bought at the top of the market. But uh, some of those polar mandates, for example, have been uh, have been around a long time and do have, uh, I think, interesting track records. And indeed, polar, I think, are very focused on thematic as, a, as, as, mm. as, as, as I guess there is on DETRA. But what you said, David, was really interesting there um, because that may, may explain why the AI funds have seen very little interest. Uh, there's there's one, two owners in our database oh, wow. of artificial intelligence funds, which presumably have been in the works for 
a number of years now. Um, is, is that just um, the passive ones, or is there, because there's, um, I think, is it Sandlam runs a kind of active one as well, and then there's some ETFs? Um, Sandlam do indeed uh, run yeah. some sort of AI fund, uh, and uh, I think I might be sharing an exclusive reader here, but the manager of that recently departed the firm, so uh, maybe all is, is not well there. It's a very large fund, but um, I think the manager recently departed, yeah. Interesting. Um, but it is interesting, yes, that AI funds haven't haven't picked up yet. Um, I mean, I'm expecting in in 2024 that we're going to get a flurry of of pitches uh, on our on our respective titles and and publications from people telling us about their wonderful AI fund. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, maybe maybe uh, may, maybe the market is becoming wise to the mm. to the challenge of of investing thematically. I suppose perhaps it's encouraging because I, I think we've all read there was a, a Morningstar report recently looking at kind of um, basically investor timing in and out of thematic funds, mm. and that's that kind of compounds really cool, the yeah. problem, yeah, yeah, because people um, people jump in and out of say a clean energy ETF at the wrong time and lose what little returns it has made over the last five years. Yes, um, and some some of the funds had actually returned a, a reasonable. Mm. Um, amount but it was not feeding through to investors yeah uh, who had you know come in at the wrong time so yeah there was certainly that element where the gains shared by the you know by the fund itself were not being passed on um because of the timing factor yes yeah Yeah. 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 you wonder perhaps um hopefully dfms are better able to kind of resist that allure than because hopefully it's more well not hopefully but i'd imagine it's perhaps more of a kind of retail investor problem Mm. than uh, yeah, poor timing in and out yeah. of those funds. I mean, I mean, the other, I guess, those who who are advocates of thematic funds would argue that um, if your client wants exposure to a particular theme, then a thematic fund, as the name suggests, is the purest way to do that. Whereas if you buy a generalist equity fund that's overweighted or something, then you're also giving them exposure to something maybe they don't want. Or if you buy... Um, for example, a very large technology company on the basis that they've got some AI business within there, you're also giving the client non-AI exposure when maybe they asked you for AI exposure. Mm. So a thematic fund has the advantage of giving the client the purest exposure they want. And maybe that's where um, some of the thematic fund launches in the sort of ESG space have, have, been, have been popular. Things like water funds, are very easy for an advisor to explain to their client mm. because I think lots of advisors and wealth managers, uh, what they find difficult in that conversation around ESG funds is to explain what the, the remit is or to translate uh, what the client wants into um, a fund. But a thematic fund, it's, it's very easy to, uh, to explain how, uh, for example, a water fund corresponds to the E, the S and and potentially the the G, whereas that's not as easy on other fronts. I suppose it'll also just be interesting to see whether DFMs would stick broadly with um, kind of wider forms of exposure. Say you think about the AI theme, um, perhaps many of them would be happy just to have some of those kind of big established tech funds, and then within the tech fund they try and, you know, I mean, you had, for example, the Polar Capital Technology Trust um, results today, and they were kind of, as you would expect, you know, talking up the ways in which they're kind of targeting AI winners um, through their holdings. So, yeah, that would be an interesting um, tension, perhaps. Sure. Um, was there anything else? No, I think... Any uh, any outlandish uh, 2024 predictions we want to make before we go? Before we tuck into the mince pies? 
Okay, um, <laughs> my prediction in 2024 is that Gilts will be one of the strongest performing asset classes of the year. Nice. My my prediction is going to be that um, you'll see some reinvestment risk. So if you do have yields come down, then you're going to have loads of money looking for a home. Sure. Um, and it'll be interesting to see where and, that goes. Particularly on the cash side. Lots of, yeah. lots of wealth managers are telling us they've got a problem at the moment because their client is saying, you know, you haven't delivered that much for the past two years and the bank is offering me five, but the bank is only offering you five for X number of months or, or, or a year or something. And then in a year, they will want to to reinvest but perhaps a year from now uh, bond yields may be lower and equity valuations may be higher so many clients are pulling out of the market at the time of low valuations mm. to re-enter at the time of high valuations and their compensation for that is whatever the cash yield is back, back to timing risk I suppose absolutely um, brilliant well that's all very uh, interesting hopefully loads of food for thought for our listeners um, but our time is up so um, I'd simply thank David and Joseph for their time. Um, thank you for listening to the final podcast of the year and take care. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.